Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny. I'm Jonathan Cake. This is the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. And my guest this week is the master playwright, Jez Butterworth. Now, you know Jez, of course, from Jerusalem, often voted the greatest play of the 21st century. It provided the vessel for Mark Rylance's incandescent central performances Johnny Rooster Byron one of the great stage creations of this or any other time first performed in 2009 then given a triumphant revival last year 2022 Jez also won the Olivier and the Tony for his play The Ferryman in 2021 and you know perhaps that he is commonly thought of as maybe the greatest playwright of the 21st century But this is an incredibly meaningful discussion for me because of all my friends. I've known Jez for the best part of 25 years and acted in his plays. I was in Parlour Song, what a wonderful, wonderful play, in 2009. Is that right? No, 2007, sorry. In New York, the Atlantic Theatre. One of the great seminal acting experiences of my life. But of all my friends... Jez is perhaps the most purely creative spirit, an artist who it's impossible really to know or understand how he does what he does. He has written seven plays. They're gleaming examples of the human imagination. They didn't exist before he thought them out of his extraordinary brain, and they will exist for all time. And there is something of the complete artist about him. And so... In many ways, this, this, this conversation is an attempt to do the absolutely impossible, which is to try to somehow understand, get a little closer to, somehow take the measure of my friend's creative genius. And I'm so glad this conversation exists, just because, you know, normally we're talking about our lives, our kids what we had for dinner last night, but we rarely spend the time to take the depth and breadth of his incredible career. Oh, and I should tell you that when he refers to Tom in this conversation, that's Tom Butterworth, his older brother, very distinguished writer in his own right. And Ian is Ian Rickson, brilliant director of most of Jez's plays. Gentlemen of the Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your beginner's call. 
Mr. Butterworth and Mr. Cake, this is your beginner's call. Gentlemen, we are holding the curtain as Mr. Butterworth has forgotten his shield. But this is your beginner's. Mate, <laughs> have I sort of told you... Have I told you the premise of all this? No. No, okay, good. I think it's important that you don't know the premise of it. Usually is. The idea is... Oh, I've got a present. Mm. Let's start with the present. Which I think will help with the premise. It's quite hard to buy you presents. Have you heard, have you heard this from people before? So I decided oh, on fantastic. some. I decided on some Japanese whiskey. Twelve-year-old Yamazaki whiskey. Fantastic. Which no, no. might sound like I'm trying to sort of throw some firelighters <laughs> onto a cold grate, but that's not the case. Fantastic. I just thought maybe. Okay, so one of the premises of the, of the thing was I loved the idea of listeners sort of feeling like they were pulling up a chair after a show at sort of in the green room of National Theatre or Bar Centrale in New York after a show. And perhaps a little bit of Japanese whiskey would make them feel even more like they're pulling up Yes, as, as a slight timeout, I'm supposed to be on the wagon. Are you? <laughs> Good, good. We don't, we don't need it. Oh dear. You don't need it. No, the thing is, I is certainly the, don't. The, need the it. only person I know that's going to listen to to this for sure is Laura, <laughs> <laughs> and she'd be mightily disappointed if I started chugging whiskey <laughs> <laughs> falling off the wagon on mic. That could be. That could be a real. <clears throat> could be a real near copy. Yeah, sure. Uh, you could blame me and just say it was entirely. It was entirely for stage door Johnny. So. You and I have known each other a long time, mm. but we don't spend a lot of time talking about the theatre. You know, obviously we talk about your plays and, and a bit more about, you know, sort of our lives in the moment when you're doing your plays, you know, what we're up to essentially, rather more than sort of stepping back and looking at all this stuff. I have to say, it's been very moving for me thinking about interviewing you and sort of looking back at your work in the theatre over these, I mean, what was Mojo? 1995. It was, yeah. 1995, your first play, Mojo, at the Royal Court, which it was, am I right in saying, the first, first time play, meaning the first play that a playwright had written before having written anything else that went on in the main house at the Royal Court. I think it was the first one since Look Back in Look anger. Back in but That might have just been a, a line that an excellent that marketing or, ploy. Or Stephen came up with. Yeah, I think I believe it, it was 95. So I'm writing a, a, a play at the moment, which is only my eighth play. Yeah. And I was driving down to the countryside two weeks ago to, to nail the middle bit. And it was the day of the Queen's funeral. When the country stood still, I didn't. I was driving west, listening to it all on Radio 4. And I sort of went into this little bit of a dream world and was just listening and driving and listening and driving. And I suddenly looked up and I had turned off the M4 and was heading towards Marlborough. And I wasn't aware that, that, that I had done that. Towards Pusey? Towards Pusey, a place where I have not set foot for over 20 years. And I didn't decide to go there but Pusey is of course for those that don't know was the not only the place where I wrote Mojo my first play yeah. but it's also the setting for well, the fictional village of Flintock, Flintock. For, for Jerusalem yeah. so 
there I was, and I thought, well, there's a roundabout here, shall I turn around and go back? I've got a thing I'm supposed to be doing, or shall I just carry on? Wow. So I thought, I'll just carry on, and so I, I drove into Pusey. I pulled up outside the old school that me and Tom hired a flat in when I wrote it, a tiny little thing, and I looked in the windows of the, of the, the, the room where I was sitting while I was 24 years old writing this first thing. Well, I'd sort of shown up by chance, but some bit of me had decided to be there. And two really strange things happened. I was listening to music, like, randomly on, on Spotify. And as I pulled on the handbrake, Rain Dogs came on, mm. the Tom Waits song. Now, that album, I listened to that maybe ten times a day for a year, over and over and over, trying to get a rhythm from it. And it was the oddest thing that it should just appear as I pulled it on. It started, and I just sat there and listened to it. I didn't really know what quite was what was going on. Got out of the car, and I walked through the village. It was completely deserted, and I sat down outside the Moonrakers, which is the pub there, <laughs> which um, Mickey Do is yeah. one of the major models of, of Johnny Rooster. I think it was even New Year's Day or something. He died outside waiting for it to open. And I sat on the bench that he, he sat on and just sort of thought of him and then and there was nobody about, but I suddenly became aware that there was somebody behind me. I was sitting with my back to the window of the pub on this bench, and I thought, there's somebody in there, somebody behind me. And so I turned around slowly, and in the pub were about 50 people standing completely still, total silence, looking at the telly, because it was the two-minute silence. Yeah. And then they just played the national anthem and I took a photograph of it and I left and I got back in the car and I drove past Stonehenge through the villages, past Stonehenge, mm. listening to it, all the way down to uh, the farm where I was going to try this thing again. Mm. It was the oddest set of, wow. of coincidences that I should ever return there, but return there at that moment, that exact moment, by accident. It sounds like a sort of scene from one of your plays. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like there's something so intrinsically theatrical about being drawn off the motorway on your way somewhere else, not quite understanding this involuntary part of yourself that's taking you to this scene from your past, going to a place which, will it have a blue plaque one day? Saying this bloke who was the model for Rooster Byron dropped dead waiting to get in the pub. On the Queen's, the day of the Queen's funeral. <laughs> During the minutes, two minutes silence. Goodness I gracious. I think it stands to demonstrate, though, the bits in, in, in my work which feel very sort of heightened and sort of numinous don't to me. They feel very on or adjacent to uh, or a frame on from what it's like walking around PV most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliantly, that's brilliantly put. One of the things I wanted to ask you was how much space in your dreams your plays occupy. Do you dream about your plays? No, but I firmly believe that they are dreams, that the, the process of, of writing them are a form of lucid dreaming because I've got a, a similar kind of control over it, i.e. very little, and you just kind of see them. And in this case write them down it's it's yeah it's 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 i think it is a form of dreaming in the same way that you would be working through if if that's what dreams are for if dreams are to work through 
the unworkable uh, and go over them and, and, and try and make sense of them, then that, that I think is exactly what's happening. And I think I have a similar kind of understanding of it and actually after it have a similar feeling of waking up from it and, and not really understanding what my role in it was. Or oh, God, how extraordinary. Quite literally, physically, while you're sort of pregnant with a play, where you're bringing it to term, when you are excavating this thing from whatever part it comes from, does it crowd into your night No, no memory of no. it. Interesting. No. But what does happen yeah. is the problems that I take to bed with me, mm. when I wake up, the solutions are often there, really? more often than not. Solutions to the plays? Yeah, so, so, so if, I, if there's something I can't work out, I'll just consciously consider it before I go to bed. And when I wake up, it's like there is a butler standing by the bed with a silver tray with the answer on it. But I won't have experienced it in right. any way consciously at all. I won't have dreamt the answer. I'll just have the answer. That's an extraordinary idea that at a certain point in your writing, there's availability and, and sleep can bring it on. But it isn't all the time. Am I, am I right? Meaning these, these things, the people who are the sort of dreamlike way in which your plays arrive, that there is, a, as you say, perhaps a working out of the unworkable, and that you don't feel like you are a sort of voluntary part of it. It's coming through you in some way. That isn't available all the time, only at specific That's right. moments of your life. That's right. How do you recognize those? <clears throat> Morning sickness. Really? You know, just just a, all the usual symptoms of being up the duff. You know, <laughs> you, 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 the difference is obvious. You can feel okay. it straight, straight away. Uh, everything that you're for changes suddenly right. for, for a term. All you've really got to do is, is take care of yourself and show up at the desk. But there's literally no point in trying it between. It's like, there's just no point. You're just not pregnant. Right. It's the only analogy that, that fits, I think. Cause, because in between, I mean, I, like I say, you know, this is my eighth go right. at this in, in 27 years. Yeah. And all of the, the skill and the technique exists waiting there. It's utterly useless. Right. Utterly useless until such a time as I feel like a play is happening. And then I'll use that skill and technique to make that happen. Now, if that doesn't show up, I won't be writing any more plays. But that skill and technique is happily translatable into the area of screenplay writing. So a lot of that is so much more craft-based rather than what we're talking about, right. that you can apply those skills and wait. 27 years since you wrote your first play, or since it was first performed, mm -hmm. 95. Do you get pissed off with people wondering why you haven't written more? Never. I wasn't aware that they, that they were oh, they are. feeling that. Oh, are oh they? yeah, yeah, yeah. People are feeling that. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's all over. It doesn't piss me off at all. Right. No, because I know in my heart how they happened yes. to, to me. You know, I haven't written a Brexit play. You know, I haven't written a, a, a play about lockdown because there'd be no point because I didn't have... I didn't get pregnant at those times. Right, so right, right. it's not going to be a play. And I, I feel also like because I'm being honest and attentive to the moments where I think it is happening, I don't think I've written any shit plays. Right. Would you put it like kids, seven kids mm. with one on the way? Mm. Sounds like quite a lot of kids. Yeah. I don't feel uh, – I think I probably felt after I wrote my own job and I didn't write anything for seven years yeah. that it was pretty – that that was a pretty lean – period and i think that was alarming 
Was it? Was it, yeah. was it? Was it scary to you? Yeah, it was alarming. But I do remember it being so. I thought, what the fuck's happened? But no, I think I kind of see myself as like the shaggy of playwriting. Mm. You know, it's just like one song every, you know, five years, but it's an absolute banger. Oh, I see. I thought you meant shaggy from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, I was curious. Mr. Lover Lover. Yeah, I got it, got it, got it. <laughs> Not prolific. But, <laughs> but they're worth waiting for. I love that. I wonder if that's going to be on some thesis. <laughs> it's a PhD thesis in the years to come, uh, comparing you to the work of Shaggy. This is very good. I want to go back. Do you remember the first time you were in a theatre? Yeah, I had. It was a, it was a, a panto school panto. I think it was Dick Whittington that you were in. Oh, that I was went, in. You went to. No, went no, 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 no. First of all, that you went to. Yeah, that was the first one I went to. And Got the it. coach, we it was a it was teaming it down right. and the coach was leaking <laughs> and I sat there in very wet trousers right. with a wet shirt and a wet coat watching Dick Richardson and our entire school was just steam rising <laughs> like a herd of cows from the cheap seats I remember it so clear I remember the feeling but being so excited to be there was it exciting do you remember it as being exciting I do I remember it being incredibly exciting right and the second show I ever went to see was with the Cubs when they took us by mistake to see a show called Ipitumbi, which was in 1978, I think it was, which was like a sort of African dance show that involved an incredible amount of simulated sex <laughs> and nudity. <laughs> it was just tits akimbo. <laughs> no. The whole thing. How old were you guys? Eight years old. No. Somebody had to pay for Ipitombi. And it was 10p. We were in the absolute, we had our back to the back of the theatre. <laughs> but it was 10p for a set of opera glasses. <laughs> and everybody spent their 10p and we just got an eyeful. That sounds amazing. Steve was there, my brother Steve. Was he? Yeah, he was at Ipitombi. That's amazing. That was your second experience of the theatre. Dick Whittington to Ipitombi. Do you remember the first time you were ever on stage? Yes, I was on stage in a school play at Killigrew School in the main hall there where I played a centurion and I had to sing a song about taxing people. I think it must have been, I don't even know where it's from, it's probably like like um, uh, Gilbert Sullivan or something. Mm. Rama said you've got to be taxed for every penny you're worth. So hurry along as quick as you can. Back to your place of birth. Oh, the opening line. I love that it stays with you. <laughs> How did you feel you did? As as in all my performances, I thought I was absolute chocolate. I thought <laughs> it was killed. wonderful. <laughs> I thought I smashed it. <laughs> and as with most of my performances, pretty much everybody else dis would disagree. Right. How old, roughly how old were you when you were doing I would have been, that would have been probably in between Dick and Ippy Tumby. <laughs> Wow. Oh, so you were already an experienced performer by the time you went to Epitombi. I think I had had some experience. Amazing. Yeah. So every time you – and you were an actor after university, is that right? Uh, you an agent? Yeah, well, very oddly I did. I went up to Edinburgh with a play called Huge with Ben Miller and um, Simon Godley. And in order to pay my way, I acted in a Crispin Wittell's play, Killing Him. Right. There was 200 – quid a week in it in scottish money sure. like to act in this thing and we were there so i sort of paid my paid my way i just did it 
because we were in the same, we were all in the Pleasance. Were you also chocolate in that? Uh, well, not only was I chocolate, I got an agent. Yes. So uh, clearly. Chris Neal from ICM showed Chris up in the Neal. bar afterwards and said, do you want me to be your agent? He was a big agent. Which possibly still is. Which killed the actual actors like <laughs> who, who I was up there with. Because <laughs> it was like, you know, it's, it was all our mates. It was Johnny Ayres. Yes. And Helena Schmid was, was in it. And I think right. Will Keane was in it. And they've all gone, you know, yeah. they've all gone on to become actors. Yeah. And in the bar after, it's like, hey, you'll never guess. I've got an agent. <laughs> I would have killed me. But Chris Neal was, possibly still is, a very distinguished agent. He knows talent. So you obviously had something going on on stage. He was sharing your opinion of yourself on stage. He thought you were obviously good. What happened to your acting career after that? Well, look, even a stopped clock, Johnny, tells the right time twice a day. Right. And I happened to be playing the one thing that I could do, and I could probably do for you today, right. which is an absolute dick who's completely sure that he's chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very close to what was, what was really going on. Then when, I, when, I, when he represented me, he sent me, I was an actor for three months. I got four parts. Yeah. I was in The Bill. I was in a thing called So Haunt Me. Wow. I was in a thing called um, Channel Co. I got three parts. Yeah. But every audition I went to, I could only do the one, right. it's like I had one shot. And, and if it wasn't that, I couldn't right. get near it. And so I didn't get any parts after Three that. parts in four months, enviable stats. Well, in the fourth month, I moved to Pusey to write Mojo, and I didn't have the money to get in for auditions, and that was the end of my acting career. So technically, you're still with Chris Neal. <laughs> <laughs> and available for work, I suppose. Do, 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 does anybody ever offer you acting uh, gigs? Nobody. So not only has nobody offered <laughs> me an acting gig, but for some reason... Nobody in the theatre has ever asked me to do anything. <laughs> For instance, the Royal Court in 27 years have never asked me to do anything. Or just phone up and say, do you want to come to right. this thing? Or do you want to... Right. Do, how about, you know, coming and talking to these? Nothing. Yeah. Nobody's ever asked me to do anything. And it was 25 years before someone asked me to say, adapt Something. I've been asked once to make a, to adapt something. Like no one ever, no one ever like asks me to be involved. Ever. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I have no idea. So interesting. I have literally no idea. Do you think people are scared of you? I don't know why it is. I think that it's probably got around that there is a 99.9% .9 chance I wouldn't do it. Right. I don't know why it is, but it's just the fact so is there. Interesting. Which is I never get asked to do anything. Yeah. That's so curious to me. What does it feel like now when you're on stage? Which you've had to be. I mean, for example, I was in the audience at Radio City Musical when you won the Tony for Best Play and for Best Writer. Best Writer? Is that a thing? Best Play? Something like that. Whatever. Yeah. For The Ferryman. And you made several speeches from the stage that night. Mm. Almost all of them about your partner and leading actress in that play, Laura Donnelly. In fact, you made so many speeches about Laura that we were all convinced you were having an affair. It seemed like you were saying so many times how amazing she is. We were like, oh, yeah, definitely. The truth was a little more, um, less racy than that. <laughs> I was not, not drunk. Right. Got it. And as it went on, I thought, I think I probably forgot that I'd already, uh, I'd already delivered the You'd already done it once. Yeah. 
Uh, she was also, you know, transcendently brilliant and deserved to be praised three times. But listen, what, so what does it feel? What does it feel like to you? I suppose what I'm getting at is, what's your relationship? You spend most of your time, right, writing these plays somewhere else. You go into a theatre from the rehearsal room once one of your plays is on. What's it make you feel when you go in? Let's let's break it down into different parts. Mm-hmm. The lobby. No, let's start with the marquee. Mm-hmm. The marquee. You see the marquee. Well, from one of your plays, what are you feeling? Well, it depends where it is. I mean, you, you go you go to the to the the thing I like most about the Royal Court Theatre, by some way, is that they actually put your name in lights. Yes, and you get to drive past in a bus and see it, and it looks yeah. like it's 1952. I mean, what did that feel like when it was Mojo? What did that feel like first time? Your first play, and it was a sensation. But before that, there's your name on the side of the theatre, in the front of the theatre. And you've just emerged from an old school where you've been writing it in Pusey, in Wiltshire. How did it feel? Well, my favourite, I love rock and roll, and my favourite rock and roll song has for a long time been Johnny Be Good. So the last verse of that song will give you some sort of indication as to how I felt all the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have to um, remind me. And maybe someday your name will be in light saying, Johnny Be Good tonight. Right. So did you feel like this is a good start, but I hope they like it? That whole summer was a bit of a, was a, bit of a dream in, in and of itself. It, everything went so banally to plan. You know, I, sh- I went off to the countryside to write a, a play with an interval. I sent it in. The Royal Court said that they put it on the main stage. We did. It was a wonderful production that Ian It was did. a wonderful production. And that whole summer was just completely fated and it won all the awards. It was, you know, it comes up October, November. I didn't know what the hell had just happened. Yeah. I'd been in, well, in, in May of that year, I'd been in the Moonrakers with Tom trying to win the jackpot on the millionaire machine so we could put electricity in the key and heat the house and, and boil a kettle. You know, it was it was extraordinary, and, and and a month later, I moved into Dean Street. I was living next door to the Nelly Dean. I remember, and my entire life had had completely had completely changed. It's really hard for anybody who wasn't twenty five. Jesus Christ! It's really hard for anybody who wasn't around or didn't see that production. I know it was revived, wasn't it? And it was a huge success. And anybody who didn't see that production, I'm just literally. Oh, mate, it's so moving, honestly, knowing you all this time and remembering all that. We didn't know each other very well then. We were just on the outskirts of mm, knowing each other. We were. We were at the Brent Cross. <laughs> we were at the periphery mm. of intimacy. And anybody who wasn't around then in that summer of 95, when it felt like the world had kind of come to London. Do you remember that sort of feeling? It was. Yeah. It really felt for a hot minute like it was the centre of the world. And I remember going to see Mojo, and I only ever experienced this once before at the, or since, at the Royal Court, which was Oleana, where we didn't leave. The audience didn't leave. We either stayed in the stalls and talked about it, or we stood on the steps and talked mm-hmm. about it. It was almost as though what we just experienced in there, we didn't want to part from. We didn't yeah. want to leave behind. Yeah. It had this amazing spell on all of us. This is a completely freeform ramble chat, but one of the things I find so striking about your plays is how, is how directly into the vein they go. Other playwrights are 
respected, admired, venerated, even worshipped, right? Your plays are loved. Your plays are really loved. I was just talking to someone this morning who who, who knew that I was going off to um, see. She lit up thinking about her and her mom going to see Jerusalem. Jerusalem, her mom had seen first time round. It's the most transcendent experience of her theatre-going life. Her daughter went to see the revival just now. The same thing for the different generation. And there was this sense of it being not to do with a, being a play, not to do with being a piece of theatre. It was to do with it being a cultural experience that went beyond it and their relationship to it being completely intimate, mm. completely loving, like a friend. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's, it's wonderful uh, do, 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's no question really here except – do you love the plays back in the same way that people love them? I do. I do. And, and I, it's, it's wonderful to hear, hear you say that because I really try. You know, I really give it everything I've got. And I don't just write ones and think, oh, that'll do. You know, I do try and I wait for years and it's really painful to, to wait for years. I was just thinking that I flashed on why it might be. I remember when I was doing the Centurion role. I forgot my shield and I had to go, right before I went on stage, I had to go running all the way back to our classroom, which was through the dining room, along a long corridor, past Mrs. Machel's class, past Mrs. Ray's class, into, Mrs., into Mr. Minikin's class, pick up the shield and run all the way back. And as I was running back at full pelt, I, I knew I'd missed my, my line and I knew everyone would be waiting for me and I was running as fast as I could and I was just flying through this like dark corridor and I remember very clearly thinking, this is fucking brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I've never felt so alive. They're all waiting for me. Yes. This whole day where we've been like putting on costumes in a classroom where I normally sit and want to die of boredom. Yes. But we've been putting on grease paint and costumes and there's been songs going on. And now we're doing the show and everyone showed up. It was like, this is so much better than anything else I've ever done. This is what I want to do. Now, cut forward to, to actually doing it where I'm going to the theatre for the first time a lot. And certainly once I got to London, nine out of ten of the experiences are awful. Plays. Plays. They, 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 within ten minutes, you're bored out of your mind. <laughs> and you actually want to leave. You do, you're basically deciding whether or not you can leave uh, at the end. Yes. And if you can, you do. And if you feel you can, you've got to caught up with the second half of it. Yes. And I couldn't square with myself. It's like discovering that all football is shit, you know, but you want to be a footballer, you know, but, it's, but, it, but all the games are rubbish. All, by the way, all, all football used to be shit. Used to be, and now it's Dreadful. not. Okay, and so, so I just sort of thought when I first sat down to do it, that if I was going to do it, it couldn't be shit. I had to really, really right. try and quite simply make this come alive. You yeah. know, it didn't, and I did it first of all with, just with heat. And then learned to do it with light, I think. Like, so you had both. And then oh. it overshot in a way. It was like, it was just, I, I wouldn't accept that that little boy running down the corridor late for his line could be wrong. So then why the theatre, really? I know you write movies, you write TV. What is it about plays that you need as a form of self-expression? What is that form giving you that you can't get anywhere else? I think it must be because full... Rooms are my favourite thing. Rooms full of people. Mm. You know, I grew up in a really small home with lots of people, and and I always loved being in the pub. And I've just there's something about it being full and everybody being there. Mm. It really doesn't matter how wonderful 
Casablanca is, let's say, Rick has never seen heard anyone laugh or cry. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. There he goes. That was the first part of Jez Butterworth. Oh, mate. Oh, I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It was such a treat for me, such a special gift, actually, to be able to look back over Jez's extraordinary career. Really wonderful. And I really hope you can join me for the second part of this chat. I loved that ghost story he started out with about finding himself magnetically drawn back to this mythological place of his sort of creativity, Pusey, in Wiltshire, on the day of the Queen's funeral. That was such an extraordinary story. And I also loved the way he talked about lucid dreaming. To be honest, that felt as close as I've ever understood that sense of the unconscious working its way through an artist to become the creativity that the art becomes. I thought that lucid dreaming idea was so insightful. I loved him having an affinity with Shaggy. Ah, that seemed that seemed very appropriate. <laughs> and his extraordinary experience. His second outing to the theatre with the Cubs to go and see Ippy Tombi. That was really something else. I really enjoyed it. And Maybe more than anything else, that why being a little boy running along a darkened corridor, having forgotten his shield, and knowing that the whole theatre was waiting for him to get back and get on stage and sing his song about taxing people. Why that made Jez want to write good plays. Oh, I really hope you can join me for the second, um, for the second part of this chat. Please please do. It only gets better. He really is one of the world's great talkers. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Sees plays sad and Stage door Johnny, stage, stage, stage door Johnny.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.